There are some who call me Tim. Good afternoon, Valley of the Sun. Tim Jacobs here. Welcome to Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. Your one-hour Rob with God, your spiritual Zumba class, thigh master for your soul. We are live here on 1280KXEG, so you can always call. And you can also listen to us anywhere in the world by going to the station website, 1280KXEG.com, and downloading the app. So if you haven't done that, then go do it. And also you can listen to any previous Life 360 with Tim Jacobs shows by going to timjacobslive.com. Also find me on Twitter at at Tim G. Jacobs, Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Pastor Tim Jacobs. As you know, we have moved from a half hour to an hour so we get to spend twice as much time together and that does my heart well. Ladies and gentlemen, the number to call is 602 368 3776. And you're going to want to call today because I have a very special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Stephen Mansfield. We're going to talk all things men, what it means to be a man, what the essence of manliness is, and how you can become a better man or at least know how to spot a great man. And so we're going to do that in just a moment. I also will give you an update later on in the show about my supposed interview with Ryan Bell that hopefully will be happening at one point. But I don't want to waste any time getting to my guest today, who I'm super excited to have on Life360 with Tim Jacobs, um, Stephen Mansfield. Are you there? I am. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. How are you today? I'm doing great. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Now, you, are you, you're out on the East Coast, right? Yeah, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. And just to clear the air, Stephen, I have to tell you this. Last Monday, a week ago Monday, I was with my daughter, and I was trying to help her with a school project, and we needed to get on the internet, and we were kind of out and about. And so I went to this coffee shop that has has had in the past kind of spotty internet. And so I said, well, I'll take a chance and, and uh, pray, paid the requisite $4 for the latte so I wasn't just stealing their internet. But sure enough, I get the, I get the latte, sit down, my daughter's drinking it, and the internet doesn't work. And I just kind of went, I just went off. You know, I told my daughter, I said, honey, and she's 11, and I said, the difference between winners and losers in life is that winners pay attention to detail, to the little things, right? They get the specifics right. And I'm just, I'm going off on just the mediocrity of humanity and my contempt to have to live around all of that. And literally, as I'm on this self-righteous soapbox, I get an email from your office saying, Mr. Mansfield's trying to contact you. We had arranged for a an interview on the 5th. And... Um, I'm, I'm sitting there going, are you serious? So, and the same time that I was going off on people paying attention to the little things, I myself messed up. So let me ask you, first of all, Stephen, do, um, can manly men still make mistakes? Manly men absolutely can make mistakes. In fact, I'm glad you did. It makes me realize how, uh, you know, we're all part of the same human race. Absolutely. Now, you wrote a book called Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, an utterly invigorating guide to being your most masculine self. And I was utterly invigorated in reading it. Um, but before we go any further, if people, as people are listening to this, if they get excited about this book and just who you are, where can they go to find out more about you? Well, they can go to stephenmansfield.tv to find out about me. And then, of course, the book is available through the site, as well as you know Amazon and all the online sites as well, and in most, most bookstores. 
Absolutely. Exactly. You can find it anywhere. Let me ask you first, why did you want to write a book about manliness? Well, you know, the, the, a lot of the books that I've written over the years are about men, even though they're not masculinity as a whole. And so it kind of made me pay attention to uh, masculinity in our culture. But I, I suppose, to be frank with you, it, it, the, what really started it was a little bit of anger. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I watch TV like all of us do, and, mm-hmm. and the presentation of the average male on TV is just insulting, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's either a dog or he's the wimpy father at home doing a happy dance because he found the remote in the couch, you know, and, <laughs> and while his wife right. and kids roll their eyes in the other room. Right. Um, or, you know, he's hanging out at the pole shoving 20s into somebody's underwear. Mm-hmm. And the, that whole presentation just angered me. But then the other thing was I got very moved by the questions I was asked when I was uh, on college campuses. I do a lot of speaking, especially on campuses. And uh, late at night, you know, over pizza or whatever, the the young men would turn to me and say, look, just tell me what to do. What does a man Mm. do? You know, I know Mm. we're all messed up, and and I I, I know that, you know, we all got wounds, but, you know, nobody's ever told me what to do. Most of these guys unfathered, you know, either no father in the home or just never knew their father. And and they were saying, tell me what to do. And I realized that the sort of therapeutically oriented – men's movement that we've known about, kind of the baby boomer version of the men's movement, um, was certainly, you know, a value, but, but that it might not reach these younger guys who just want to know the basics and the fundamentals of what does a man do? Absolutely. So I decided to write a book that would, that would both address the, the, the horrible image of manhood that's out there in our culture, mm-hmm. but also would tell these young guys, you know, and really focus on the issue of what does a man do? What are the things a righteous man does? So that's why I wrote the book. And you you do it really well because the book is really broken up into you have four of the Mansfield's uh, manly maxims um, and that you that you outline, and then you go into a lot of profiles. But what really struck me, and oftentimes I, mean, I read a ton, and you know I kind of get through the introduction, first few pages. But the first line of your book really grabbed me, and you said, "Let me start by telling you about the night I became a man." Tell us about that. Well, years ago, I, I had reason to be going and coming from the Middle East. Um, was doing a lot of work in that part of the world, especially in Iraq. And, and the way we would get through was to go through to Damascus and then travel across the Syrian desert and end up in Iraq. Well, on one of my trips, my paperwork got messed up. I ended up staying in Damascus for weeks. And a friend of mine in the Syrian parliament, and that's, that's of course, not the Syria of today. That's the Syria of many years ago, mm-hmm. um, just decided to have a little party for me. And so we were up on the roof of, the, of, a, of a hotel. He was trying to make me feel better since I'd been stuck there in Damascus. And uh, I was with a bunch of guys, most of them parliamentarians or Syrian you know, officials who couldn't speak English. And after a while, after it was really obvious we were having a hard time communicating, one of the guys finally turned to me and said, do you have a son? And I said, I do. He said, what is his name? And I said, Jonathan. And he said, well, then you have a new name. Well, this went on for a little while. I didn't quite understand what was going on. But finally, one of them explained to me that in Arab culture, uh, when a man has a son, it is such an honor. It's considered such an honor that they actually give him an honorific name, a whole new name, a combination of Abu, which means father of, Mm -hmm. and the shortened version of the son's name. So I became Abu John, my son's name being Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Well, they celebrated and danced and fired off Uzis and, uh, you know, (laughs) patted me on the back for hours and hours and hours. Right. And it was all a lot of fun, but the next day, I realized that something had changed in me. Hmm. Now, these are guys I could barely talk to. Mm-hmm. These guys, to be honest with you, they were almost either, either secular or Muslims. Uh, one guy was a Christian, a Syrian Christian. Um, but I realized that even though at that time I had been a pastor for many years, I had a doctorate, I had played in sports, grown up in the military, um, had two children and a, and a beautiful wife, the fact is no one had ever welcomed me to any stage of manhood. Mm-hmm. No one had ever said, 
You know, we know what it is to be a man. Welcome to it. We're going to help you with this. We got you. Uh, we're, and we're celebrating this this important stage in your life. And Never in my entire life, and I had again been a pastor, a Boy Scout, a you know Christian, college, all that kind of stuff. And so, I be, when I came back uh, to the states, I began to realize, you know, the bottom line is we're not we're not recognizing uh, and affirming righteous manhood in all of its various stages. And the change that had happened in me because of this experience, I realized needed to happen in the lives of a lot of the other guys. And that's really the beginning of the journey that kind of got me to this book and to this interview. And that's what struck me about it, Stephen Mansfield, because when I read that, I, I instantly connected with you because several years ago in 2011, I had the opportunity to go to Egypt right after the revolution and was able to go into some of these outlying areas in Upper Nile and some of these Christian villages. And, and, a, and certainly not to the degree that you had that experience, but I had an experience where every night— the, the, the men of the village that we were in at, at that point, we, they'd have dinner together. And it was, you know, it's, and some people might look at that as a chauvinistic thing. The women were in one room, the men were in the other room. But I noticed each night as, I'd, we, as the men would gather and we'd spend a couple hours talking, laughing, eating really bizarre food. But they, they welcomed me as one of their own. And I, it, it fed my soul in a way that I, I, I've... I woke up and I, I didn't realize that it was subconscious, but I realized that that some, for some reason they had, had accepted me as as a man simply just because I was, and I was given a seat at that table. And I was going to ask you, I, I wonder if the if the difference there is here so often men prove their manhood based on their performance, being the the uh, the quarterback of the football team, being the star quarterback of the football team, doing something really remarkable, and yet. Very few men can really achieve those kind of remarkable things, whereas in your case, as you were saying, just the very fact that you had a son, that you went through the natural course of life, that brought you honor in their eyes. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, there are a number of cultures in the world where they simply celebrate the, the beauty of being a man. Mm-hmm. It's not about performance primarily. We do that more in the West. I mean, they want you to be a man of character. They're not just going to celebrate you if you're a man of low character. But what they're celebrating is the wonder of being a man, the responsibilities of being a man, the glory of being a father, the power of it all, the power to do good. And frankly, it's something that women celebrate, too, because, you know, really, when we get this, this whole thing about being men and women right, we're going to realize it's not a race. Uh, it's a mutual admiration society in which we encourage each other to our best. So really, in the cultures I'm talking about, no one celebrates manhood quite like women. Um, right. who are the primary beneficiaries of righteous and good and noble manhood. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've sat up late at night with many, many men, uh, especially in Arab cultures, mm-hmm. Middle Eastern cultures, where manhood is a, is a noble thing. Yes. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it changes you, because we, especially as Protestants in America, we don't have uh, rituals and ceremonies like that. We don't have bar mitzvahs, you know, like our Jewish friends who celebrate their sons turning 13 and becoming sons of the covenant and so on. We, we, we just don't have those rituals of, of initiation, and uh, I think that's probably something we'll need to come back to. We're talking with Stephen Mansfield, New York Times bestselling author and the genius behind Mansfield's Guide to Manly Men. You need to get this book. Give it to your husband, your son. Read it for yourself. You can see all of Stephen's books by going to his website, stephenmansfield.com. 
TV. And I, I meant to mention that at the beginning of the program. You are a prolific author. You have written many books. You are a frequent contributor uh, to CNN uh, and on USA Today. I read an article you you recently posted on the Huffington Post. So so you're out there, and people need to get to know your writings and and what you're talking about. Um, I want to dive into that issue a little more because you you crossed over into the issue of of Western Protestantism. Why isn't it the case, or let me rephrase the question differently, why is it that Christian men struggle so often to figure out what manliness is? Well, I'll tell you what I think it is, and I, and I don't. I want to say right up front that I am in no way anti-church. I believe in the church. I often joke that I'm a member of two churches since I live in two cities, Nashville and Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, I'm definitely going to heaven. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I'm a big believer in the church. However, when the primary um, uh, institution of Christianity is the church, and there aren't other sort of institutions or networks outside of it, or, or con- in conjunction with it, but extended from it, um, then we are not going to get the needs met. We're not going to have the kind of encouragement for righteous manhood that we need. I'm grateful for my involvement in the church. I'm very committed to church. I uh, was a pastor for 20 years, and then still uh, you know, help out a little bit in some churches on a pastoral vein when I'm not traveling, speaking, doing the other things that I do. But men have got to find a band of brothers. Uh, even if they're members of churches, uh, great, please be a member of a church. But but, uh, but you're going to have to have a band of brothers around you. You're going to have to have a band of men who love you but aren't afraid of you and who can encourage you to your best and where you can have a free fire zone where anything that needs to be said to improve each other in the midst of all the fun and the t- smack talk um, it can be said. And uh, that's why I think in our, in our modern Christian experience, you know, the family goes to church, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a family experience, and that's wonderful. I'm not putting it down in any way, but, um, but, um, but uh, in the same way that a woman needs to have sisters and a man needs to have brothers, I mean, we need to have people mm-hmm. who are like us, who can speak into our lives, who can hold up a mirror, who can encourage us, and with, with whom we can have fun. Uh, so what I'm saying is the Church doesn't necessarily do the best job of assuring that we have a band of brothers around us, because it's not really the Church's responsibility. Men have to take that on for themselves. They really do, and I think sometimes, and I know as, as a pastor myself, it, it's and I do a, I try to do a fair amount of getting out into the community and, and meeting people who are not believers and who are, whose picture of pastors is one of very serious and kind of maybe unwilling to crack a joke or you know don't don't cuss around this guy because he can't handle it and and it's sometimes Christianity or at least what's considered cultural Christianity is incompatible with just kind of how men are and for example you write in in the book and you talk about all these different profiles of, of men and, and different adjectives that describe manliness. And one of the ones that came out that struck me was, was humor. And it's funny how oftentimes people don't associate holiness with humor, but yet, but yet men need to have humor in order to be manly. But if you can't, if you can't be holy and humorous at the same time, many people feel like, well, like let's, we can't laugh in church. We can't, we can't, you know, tell a joke that would kind of, we're supposed to really focus on God here. We're supposed to be super serious. And, and yet you talk about humor even as being an aspect of manliness. Tell us a little bit about that as well. Oh, I believe that humor is one of the ways we deal with life. It's one of the ways we celebrate the 
the beauty of life, the hilarity of life, the the, uh, the inconsistencies of life. I think it sort of greases the relationships between human beings and even becomes an educational tool, and, and it's one of the great joys of life. And um, I love humor among men. I don't like dirty talk, but right. I love humor among men and the, the teasing each other and the playing around and the joking about things and good humor. I love to hear an old man cackle while he tells a joke. Right. I mean, this is this is part of what manhood is. And, uh, you know, as I've been doing a lot of the, the great man seminars, we call them great man seminars all over the country, I tell men, listen, some of you some of you really just need to, you know, you need to have that seriousness jerked out of you. You need to go memorize some jokes and have some fun and have a good laugh. In fact, I often ask men, when was the last time you had a good belly laugh with a bunch of friends? And if you tell me it hasn't been for 10 years, you know, I, I want to smack you tonight and have you get on back to a bunch of guys and have fun. Uh, humor is essential, and uh, and I, I think that the if we've got a kind of Christianity going that's too serious for uh, the kind of humor that that makes life rich and enjoyable and and relationships relationships deep then we've we've got the wrong vision of what christianity is exactly and i think it even often another part of humor is when when a man is humorous and like you said in, in a way that's you know not in a way that's uh, that's profane um, there is, especially in stressful situations, humor expresses a sense of control uh, and a sense of a c- control that the man has control over his emotions, that he's not going to freak out over even a stressful situation, that he has his composure enough to be able to tell a joke that can almost put the others at ease. And so in that sense, humor can be a form of, of leadership as well and also an acknowledgement of the man's limitations. There, there's not, we make, we make light of things sometimes that we just can't control. What can you do? What can you do but just crack a joke? You know what I'm well, saying? The, you know, that is exactly right. You know, in fact, one of, one of the roles a man has in this life is to handle affairs, is to handle the situation, mm-hmm. uh, is to be in charge so that women and children um, can, uh, you know, they certainly can exert their, themselves and use their gifts, but they, but they can rest in the presence of a man who's a true man and therefore uh, is able to handle the situation around them. Well, humor radiates that, that calm, that ease that says, hey, I got this, don't worry. You know, exactly. when, 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 if, if, you're, if your pilot on your next, the next plane you fly tells a little joke from up at the cockpit, pretty much we're not going down. Yes, you know? yes. Um, and, and, and if the commander in the battalion uh, tells a little joke, well, okay, we may have a fight to fight here. We may be heading into battle, but you know what? We're on top of it. We got this, and there's even a moment we can have a little laugh here because we're all a band of brothers, and we're going we're gonna to win this thing. And so, you know, think about Churchill and how hilarious he mm-hmm. was, um, and he, yet he put humor in the service of rallying the Western world to the great battle of the last century. So I think humor is an essential tool of righteous manhood, and, and, we, and by the way, it's one of those things that God's given us that we need to get through this life. Absolutely. We're talking with Stephen Mansfield, author of Mansfield's Guide or Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. Now, listen. Um, now, Stephen, we have some callers. Would you be up for taking a few calls? Absolutely. Let's go to Art in Goodyear. Art, are you there? Yeah. Art, do you have a question for Stephen Mansfield? I do. You know, as a, I have a, I'm a father. I have three daughters. Uh, I don't have any sons. I grew up with brothers and cousins, you know, uh, guy cousins and and so being, you know, as masculine as we thought we could be came natural for, for me. Uh, you know, the, my sister wasn't a priority. I wasn't concerned with raising her as much as I was picking on her. Uh, but now I've got these three beautiful daughters, and I now want them to, uh, you know, know what a, what a good guy is. And, and as they grow up and get older, I want to be able to point them in the right direction when it comes time to dating and, and that kind of thing. I was just wondering what kind of advice uh, uh, your guest has for uh, speaking to the fathers particularly about uh, how to raise their daughters and then how to prepare them for uh, okay. for their life ahead. Steve Mansfield? That's a great point, Art. Listen, uh, the best way for you to prepare your daughters to make 
good choices about men and to uh, refuse to accept uh, men of poor character but reach for the best men is for you to be the kind of man you want them to eventually marry. Uh, so you got to narrate what a man is in their lives. you got to be with your daughters and hang out with them and talk to them and, and say, well, you know, I'm your father and what fathers do and what a good man does in this situation is such and such. And, and uh, you know, so that's a, you, know, you, just, you just walk your role with them and you narrate what you're doing a bit. And you talk about good manhood um, and, and you just be a righteous man. Treat your wife well in front of them and, um, and, and, and be close to them. Be, be, be right there as that loving father in their life. And when they go and start looking at the men out there in the world, whether whether it looks like it or not initially, uh, they will look for men like you because they will know that that's righteous manhood. So it sounds like your heart has already turned that way. And by the way, when they start dating, don't don't forget to have your gun out and be cleaning it when they come home from a date. That's an important principle, too. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, thanks so much for the call, Art. 602-368-3776. Let's go to Matt in Surprise. Matt, you are on the line with um, Stephen Mansfield. Hi. Uh, I guess my question goes along with, with Art as well. I'm going to be a dad pretty soon. and just wanted to, to get you guys' thoughts on how to uh, be a, a real man and a good example of a man to, uh, to uh, kids as they grow up. Well, bear in mind that more of manhood is caught than is taught. You know, one of the things about men is we use a whole lot less words than women do. That's just statistically true. I'm not being trying to be humorous there. And so bear in mind that it's the way you actually live, not just what you sit and say to your children, that's going to make the difference. At the same time, you do want to narrate things to them. You do want to, you know, you're watching a TV show, some man, you know, is a dog or misbehaving, you know. It won't hurt anything for you just to say out loud, man, that's not any kind of man. That's not the way a man behaves. Man, he's certainly not a righteous man. In other words, you just you, you talk these things, um, but, but for the most part, you, you, live, you live them out. I mean, uh, especially with your sons. I think sometimes dads think the way they're going to influence their sons is by talking to them a little bit too much. Uh, we just need to take them with us. You know, the Bible often says in the Old Testament, teach your children while you're on the way or while you're doing something, while you're heading somewhere. So it's, so it's living life with them and narrating that life as you go with them that really has the power in it. So you'll do great because that's your heart. But, uh, but it's how you, it's, they're going to catch more than they're going to, they're going to hear. So live it rather than talk it to death, although some narration is, is real important too. Thanks for the call, Matt. And you know, really, that that has to do with with discipleship, really. And I, I like I might look at my three children, and I, as a pastor, I'm responsible um, to shepherd many, many people in my congregation. But those who are the most important to me are my my three children. But that really goes to your your manly maxims. I kind of heard heard that come out in in what you just talked with Matt about. You said uh, manly men build manly. Man, that's one of your one of your maxims. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that you know, as much as I'm obviously committed to books and conferences and seminars and videos and all of it. Believe me, I do all of it. Uh, the bottom line is that the best way to build a man is for that man to be amongst other men. Uh, men build men together. Um, I've always liked the illustration of the dog whisperer on TV. When he's got a dog uh, that misbehaves, what does he do? He puts him in the pack. And mm. if that dog misbehaves, the other dogs kind of, rah, 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 you know, kind of go after that little dog or that other dog, the misbehaving dog a bit, and correct him. And it doesn't take long once the misbehaving dog is in the pack uh, for that dog to begin to straighten up. Well, it's the same thing with men. Um, you know, men are meant to live in community. They're meant to live as a band of brothers, and they're meant to correct each other. And so the fast track to righteous manhood is that a man, first of all, takes responsibility for the things given to him by God. But second of all, that he lives out his life with a band of brothers 
in which there's a free fire zone in which they can say and help each other mm-hmm. correct anything that needs to be fixed and in which they're, of course, also having fun and, and, and pursuing life together. And, uh, and I'm a big believer that the, the way that men get built uh, into righteous men is amongst other men. And the yes. big problem today is that most men are living in isolation. Yes. Most men get in there into cars alone, they work in cubicles alone, they you know, go home and sit in front of the TV alone, or at least emotionally isolated from everybody in the room. And they got to have a band of brothers who get them out doing things they wouldn't otherwise do, pushing the boundaries and challenging them to be righteous men. And so I that's think one of the great blessings of my life. Yes, yeah. And I think one of the 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 hindrances to that in the church is the 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 idea that what what men are supposed to do is is come together and sit and and read the bible and reading the bible is a wonderful thing but we're supposed to kind of we're and and again I mean this with no disrespect to the many wonderful women's ministries and the deep spirituality that many women have especially many in my church but it's almost like you kind of need to go do what the women are doing sit there read the bible whereas one your very first Mansfield's manly maxim is do manly things. Get out and do those things, but do them together. And I think maybe perhaps what you've hit on here is a huge solution for you to develop those relationships is you've got to be out there doing stuff together, whether it's outdoor stuff, wild and crazy stuff, con- constru- something constructive, building something, doing something that's going to involve action. How important is action for, for manliness? Oh, it's essential. If you circle up a bunch of chairs and make a bunch of guys look at each other and talk about their emotions, you're on a fast track to boredom. You will lose those guys the next week. Uh, what, but where, how is it that men build relationships? Men build relationships by doing things. Yep. What, what are the closest relationships that, that you have? You're doing something with them. You know, mm-hmm. the, the men who have come back from wars and been in foxholes with other men, it doesn't matter if they don't even see each other for 30 years. They're closer than they are with anybody else around them. Um, you know, in sports, one of, the, one of the things we love is the teaming we have in sports. Why? Because you get on that field and, you, and, you're, and you're executing together, and relationships come in the wake of action. So that's the same thing. Where you know, Men need to be doing things. And I I urge I, one of the things I really push is every man in developing a band of brothers. I'm even writing a book on it now, and mm. and I and I say that that band of brothers, the primary goal, does not need to be looking in each other's eyes and you know, uh, and, and talking about our feelings and you know, as we often humorously say, right. singing kumbaya. Right. But but it needs to be about doing life together, and, doing life, having fun, try, pressing the boundaries, helping each other out, doing things because men are doers. And yet and that's, that's what makes the difference. Yes, and yet that requires a certain element of risk. Because to, to do something, you're going to have to try something, and, and to try something means you might fail. And, and we as men, we do not deal with failure well. Well, we don't, but I've got to tell you, what is it we're, we're protecting? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I get up in front of men, I'll often say, look, if you guys are a normal group of men, about 50% of you have got a porn problem, mm-hmm. about 25% of you are considering having an affair, about 15% of you know the name of the woman you want to have the affair with. Uh, some of you guys are cheating somewhere in your life. Uh, you know, I, I just go down the list. Is my point to create condemnation? No. My point's to say, hey, welcome to the human race. Welcome to what it's like to be a man. Now, let's get real with each other. What is it you're protecting? What's going to shock me? That you're 50, 50 pounds overweight or that you eat Oreos at 3 in the morning or, right. or, 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 or you're addicted? I mean, I mean, what, what's going to be the big surprise here? Um, let's get real yep. with each other so that we can build something better. Absolutely. We're talking with Stephen Mansfield, New York Times bestselling author and the author of Mansfield's Guide to Manly Men. Now, listen, um, actually, we have another phone call here from Gabe out in Buckeye. Gabe, you have a question for Stephen Mansfield. Yeah, you kind of mentioned the uh, loss of a rite of passage 
here in America and amongst the Protestants. What do you recommend as a as an answer to that? You know, what do, what do we do to create something? Well, I think we need to start. The men need to get together. As I'm saying, this is the real goal for me. Is not so much building, you know, programs, but rather building mm-hmm. networks of men. And then men need to initiate the boys. Uh, you know, there's an African proverb that says, if we do not initiate the boys, they'll burn the village down. That's mm-hmm. what's going on in America. Young men right. are just tearing things up. So uh, I think we should celebrate every rite of passage. You know, a young young man goes to goes to first grade. There should be some some men, some brothers, some fathers, some uncles, some guys at the church telling him how awesome that is and what a responsibility is, and that's great. You know, he, he goes off to high school from from junior high or, uh, or whatever you know program the local school district has. Uh, celebrate it. Um, and then I definitely think at the age of 13, there ought to be a great big initiation around that time, big kind of Christian bar mitzvah in a yeah. sense. A lot of churches today are doing things where they even have their young men climb mountains with their fathers, and you know, there's a whole program of study prior to that thing, and they have kind of a Christian bar mitzvah. And, um, and I definitely think when a, when a man you know, goes off to college, when he gets married, uh, when he has his first child— you know, I'm not saying these need to be big, ornate, expensive ceremonies, but right. uh, probably the one at 13 does because it's so critical. Uh, but the main thing is celebrate the rites of passage in a man's life and and uh, and cheer him on and give him advice and pray over him and speak over his life and maybe give him something he can stick on his wall that reminds him of the day. You know, that kind of stuff's important. Mm. And and we're going to have to re-engineer this kind of of culture because we just don't have it anymore somewhere along the line we lost it and you're saying you're seeing it come back but it's going to have to be it's going to have to be a first generation kind of a thing absolutely i mean i mean the, here's the good news for all the men listening this the, the answer to all of this is you take it in hand mm. we're not we're not i mean i mean no insult to churches or pastors i'm not waiting for the men's ministry i'm not waiting for a big national men's movement i'm not waiting for promise keepers i love them all but but the solution to this is my five guys around me and my band of brothers mm. and the way we raise our sons and the way we help each other out and the, how we encourage other guys to build a band of brothers around them um, and, and, and honor our sons and, and take trips. You know, when my son turned 13, I pulled a couple of my band of brothers around me and we went and uh, got on a sailboat and sailed the Abacos in the north mm. part of the Bahamas for two weeks, you know, stinking and, and no, no shaving and, you know, peeing off the side of the boat and cooking fish that we just caught. It was the greatest time of my son's life. He still remembers it, but every night we talked about what it meant to be a man and he's never forgotten all mm. of that. So not everybody can do that, I understand, but I'm just saying, you know, these are the things that, 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 that's that's very much like what happened to me in Damascus. Mm-hmm. Men I could barely understand were speaking lessons to me and celebrating something important about my life that had never been celebrated before, and it changed me. And I think we can build, help build righteous manhood by doing these sort of initiation rituals. The number to call is 602-368-3776 if you have a question for Stephen Mansfield. Um, I, you, you talk in your book, and you go into a, a lot of different examples and i love it because it's very incarnational you you, you're very open about the fact that that the men that we revere were not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination but they were able to overcome their deficiencies and if you because obviously reading your book you're you're really a historian in many respects i mean your knowledge of, of history and biography was very impressive to me is there was there a man in in the uh, in the, the different profiles you included in your book, was there one that that really stuck out to you that really influenced you greatly? 
Uh, yes, the, the man that has most influenced me from history is Winston Churchill. Mm. Um, and if, if, since you've read the book, you know that what I purposely chose to do was not just to tell the big laudatory stories about each of these guys, but to tell about their most difficult battles. Yeah. You know, I revere, I, revere, I revere Teddy Roosevelt, for example, but he had to really fight through horrible opposition. His mother and his wife died on the same day in the same house and almost threw him into a permanent lifelong depression. Yes. But, but it was by relating to the wild that he recovered himself. Well, I relate to Churchill so much. Um, he, had a, he had a very, very difficult life. You know, we remember, uh, you know, the humor and the great speeches and the cigars and the, and the bowler hats and the jaunty manner. Um, but Churchill uh, was a stutterer. His father hated him. Mm-hmm. He was locked away in boarding schools almost his entire life. Um, Churchill was haunted literally by what he thought were visitations of his father's entire life, and he suffered such depression from his father's hatred of him that even when he was prime minister and, and of England and the primary leader in the world during World War II, he wouldn't stay in a room with a balcony on it because he was afraid a depression would hit and he would throw himself off. Mm. So he had to fight every day of his life to sort of walk in the straight and narrow and walk a meaningful life. Well, I don't have those that same degree of struggle, but um, I'll tell you what, it inspires me. And the thing that I wrote about in the book, as you know, is that Churchill could have, when his father died, just said, well, thank God the man's dead. Now I don't have to mess with him. But instead, he said, I decided right then and there uh, that even though he was not the best of fathers, that I was going to live out his legacy and live out his values and live out his nobler self and make his mission my own. And that's exactly what Churchill did. And uh, I think all of us, you know, who have had fathers who are perhaps in some areas disappointments, and maybe that's most of them, we have a choice. We can either live in the smallness of our own bitterness, or we can decide to take the better natures of our fathers and make them a commission for ourselves. And that's what Churchill did. I think he stands as a model to us. And because he, there were so many men who perhaps have great fathers, and they still make a mess of their lives because they become a victim. They place blame. They didn't get everything that they wanted. And what I love about about your book and and the, the urging that's that's kind of a sub theme throughout it is is we really as men we have the responsibility and we also have the ability to rise above these challenges. Imagine how different the world would have been had Winston Churchill done what many men do today, which is to say, well, I am a victim and I have I sh- I am entitled to feel this way. I'm entitled to to retreat back into the back room and turn on the video games and just check out of life and and not stick up for my nation and not be there when my nation needs me. Imagine how different the world could be, which also allows us to, to dream and to wonder, what could the world become if more men were able to overcome these great challenges? Well, that's exactly my point. I think that you made a perfect point. You know, the, the, the fact is that, that most men today, we, we find out from surveys, are debilitated by some sense of having been wronged earlier in their life. Well, you know, maybe you've heard the phrase that, that, that being bitter is like drinking poison, thinking the other guy's going to die. I mean, you can be bitter against somebody who's wronged you, but all you're doing is damaging yourself. I think every man has greatness in him, certainly the power God gives to be a great man. Um, but if, you, if he chooses to look at the wrongs that he suffered, I mean, let's be blunt. We live in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, no one loves us perfectly. And if we want to be upset about the fact that our wives don't love us perfectly or aren't perfect themselves or our fathers or our mothers or our, you know, our friends, I mean, there's always something to be, be upset about because the world is flawed. The world's cracked. What we need to do is forgive the flaws, rise above our own flaws, and live out the greater nature and the greater example these people are for us. And that's what victory really is made up of for a man. It is. And and that really leads me, and I, I've only got a few minutes left with you, and I definitely want to respect your time. 
I wanted to get to this last part, and it's it's toward the end of your book. And again, um, there there's so much there. There's there's there are poems, there are quotes, so many inspirational things. There's one the the uh, the poem of Sir Fan- Sir Francis Drake. I actually told my wife I want to get that blown up and hung on my on my wall just because it, it so moved me and inspired me. But the but the one chapter that towards the end that really got me was the concept of presence, the, the, the presence of a man. And one of the things, I'm a pastor, I'm also a, a, a chaplain in the Air Force Reserve. And, and so we, as, as chaplains, we talk a lot about the power of presence. But it, 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 the way you wrote it hit me in a way that I hadn't really considered it before, but how a man can impact people just by his presence. And I was talking with my wife about this, because I just got back from my, my drill weekend on Sunday night. And she said, Tim, she said, when you're gone, the kids always hear more noises at night. And, and she understood exactly that idea of the power of my presence in the home. And that, that blew me away. Um, talk, about, talk about that, because that's, that's a powerful concept. I think when a man is walking out righteous, noble manhood to the glory of God and taking responsibility for what he's been given uh, and doing it with God's wisdom and God's strength, there is a resident weightiness. There's a call it what you will, anointing, authority, gift, grace. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to use all of those words, but what I know is mm-hmm. when I take responsibility for the field assigned to me, which is one of my big four maxims, um, I have authority and presence uh, for standing over that, for guarding it, for tending it, and it makes a difference. But the best illustration I can use, by the way, I learned this from Coach John Wooden, whom I spent some time with when I was in college, and I described that in the book. But my own illustration is that my daughter, my daughter used to go, uh, is in, lives, lives in New York and is a, you know, 20, in her mid-20s now, but when I would pick her up from her private high school uh, back in the day, um, I would walk in the door, and she was in this great big atrium uh, you know, where all the parents picked up their kids. She would see me walk in the door, but, but many times she'd be talking to a boy, and she said, Dad, it's uncanny. Hmm. When you walk in, even though the boy has his back to me, to you, and he's not doing anything wrong. I mean, my daughter wouldn't let this boy talk nasty to her or anything. Um, she said, something changes as soon as you walk in the room. Hmm. The boys get gentler. Sometimes they take a step back. <laughs> they seem to be in check in some way. It wasn't like they were misbehaving before, but somehow they gentle up um, because, you know, Mufasa has come into the room. Yes. You know? I mean, I have prayed for my daughter, <laughs> held her, disciplined her, funded her, you know, stood with her, trained her. Absolutely, I should have an authority in her life. And it's not just an authority that's communicated with, you know, words and acts of discipline. It's an authority that permeates her life. And so, yes, my presence should be calming to her. It should be protective. Um, it should be reassuring, it, and it absolutely should make anyone who stands near her um, behave themselves because I'm present, whether they see me or not. Now, that's not some kind of weird mysticism right. or new age thing. That's just biblical Christianity. And uh, and yeah, I have it with both of my children and in my home, and my wife's the same way. My wife's a valiant woman, but yeah, mm-hmm. she doesn't do as well when I'm not here. It's not that she's emotionally needy. Mm-hmm. It's that it's that I I occupy a place of authority and defense and protectiveness. She sleeps better, eats better, works better, does everything better when I'm present, and that's exactly what we would expect. And that is that is such a beautiful thing. It, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, and as you said in the book, it's a gift that is given to women. It's a gift that is given to children. When we get men who are operating at their best, they bless everything around them. And that's what really what really comes through there. Um, and so th- this has been a, a fantastic conversation. One, one last question. 
can any man, I mean, there's, there's all, there's men listening to this right now. There's, there's women right now, maybe whose hearts are even breaking a little bit because they, they, they have a man in their life who just is, this concept is not even on the radar screen. And there may be a little bit of hopelessness. Um, Stephen Mansfield, can any man change? Any man can change. And I am astonished by how fast men change when they get serious about it. Hmm. So women don't be discouraged. Men who are in trouble know that you can get out of trouble. Uh, get with other men who are pursuing righteous manhood. I'm not hesitant to say get this book. It's not the only book on men, but it's a, it's a good step up. Um, and find righteous men to be with and commit yourself to righteous manhood. The, the pace of change and the fruit of that change is absolutely astonishing once you get serious about it. Now, now Stephen Mansfield, uh, it has been such a privilege to have you on the show. Um, you have just, I just want to let everyone know, you've also recently released a book called Miracle of the Kurds, which, which everything going on right now in the Middle East with ISIS is extremely relevant. So I want to make sure and throw that in there as well so people knew to not only get your book on manliness, but also get your writings on what's happening there in the Middle East. Uh, Stephen Mansfield, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an incredible interview. And hey, can you come on the show again maybe and at some point and talk about Miracle of the Kurds? I'd love to. I'd love to. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Stephen Mansfield. God bless. That was an incredible opportunity to be able to talk to someone who is a uh, best-selling author, um, very huge presence in, um, among um, in many circles, and just an opportunity to see a guy who's living it out. You know what I'm saying? Who's not afraid to make mistakes and not afraid to to fail in his journey of becoming the best man that he can possibly be. The number is 602-368-3776. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Because I kind of want to continue this theme throughout the rest of the show. Um, you can call in 602-368-3776. Do you have a response to this? Do you, what, what, what thoughts do you have about it? And remember, this is Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. I am Tim Jacobs. And you know, the beautiful thing about this show, ladies and gentlemen, is that it is commercial free, which means we take no breaks, which means you don't have to sit there and listen to someone talk about their dry cleaning business. And you don't have to sit there and listen to someone talk about, you know, growing back hair that's fallen off your head while you're waiting for the show to continue. You can just sit here and we can have a conversation. However, I do want to throw this little bit in here. I, I want to just give props to a very good friend of mine who has been fixing me up. As you know, or as I mentioned last week, I messed up my shoulder a couple months ago doing CrossFit. And if you've if you know me, if you see me, um, I'm not the poster child for CrossFit. I do it. I try hard. I do okay. But um, I, I am definitely, you know, in the lower percentile of greatness. So I messed up my shoulder a few months ago. And um, I just want to give a shout out to Midas from CairoFit, who has been fixing me up and doing a fabulous job. CairoFit has locations all around the valley. They have one in Buckeye. They have one in Peoria, and they also have one in Tempe. If you are like me and your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash, then you need to go see Metis. And their number is, uh, I'll give you this number, 
623-322-5078. Again, 623-322-5078 for ChiroFit. They will fix you up. They'll get you back because you know what? And it's actually, it's better to to get older as I am and bust yourself up on the in, the, in, the, in your physical body than to not do anything and sit there and then start to have internal injuries and feel terrible about yourself. So listen, as we get older, we're going to get hurt. We're going to bust ourselves up. That's why you got to make sure you get someone who can help fix you through all of that. So there you go. I want to give props to Midas for that. So continuing this conversation, talking about the subject of manliness, I wanted to go over real quick what he says um, about these different maxims, these Mansfield's manly maxims. Very excellent alliteration. But he, he says, he talks about three of them, uh, or four of them, rather. And the first, the first one is, is this. He says, manly men do manly things. And we talked about the importance of action, getting off the couch. Um, stop being passive. You know, here's the crazy thing about Genesis, the book, first three chapters of Genesis. Everything, and I've said this to couples often and when I do marriage counseling. Every problem you've had as a married couple can be traced back to something that is brought up in the first three chapters of Genesis, and most specifically chapters two and three. Now, why? Because in Genesis chapter two, you have the, the God creates Adam, and he creates him to be able to do all kinds of great stuff, to have dominion over the earth, right? And he gives him the ability to do it. And then he creates this beautiful wife whom he sees for the first time. He breaks out into a little jig. He says, he says finally, at last, she is flesh my flesh and bone of my bone should be called woman. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, guys, if first time you ever saw a woman and she was perfect and she wasn't wearing any clothes, you'd bust out in a song as well, okay? So he breaks out into a little poem and he, for a brief moment, paradise is perfect. And then something that Adam does changes everything and it's one of Mansfield's maxims because Mansfield says, manly men tend their fields. Well, what happened to Adam? Adam wasn't tending his field. He wasn't watching over what was going on. So his wife, Eve, who's not any less intelligent, not any less capable. In fact, in fact, one um, commentator that I've read, and I, why can't, oh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, brilliant guy, uh, was talking about how perhaps even Eve could have been superior in some ways because she had all of the intellect and she was beautiful. Um, so she was really this, this incredible kind of crown jewel of, uh, of creation in terms of what God had made. But the fact of the matter is the Bible says that she was alone, presumably, or at least uh, at that point, Adam was not there with her to step in and say, what's going on, was deceived by the serpent. And then when Adam saw this, when Adam was offered the fruit, he ate it, okay? Why? Because he wasn't tending his field. Now, I know lots of men out there, and you guys, you, you have everything under control. You go to work, you have, you have your schedule lined out, everything goes, you know, you got like when you're supposed to get the oil changed on your car, maybe you do it yourself because you're more manly than I am, but you got everything scheduled out, your life is under control, but you have no idea what's going on in the bedroom of your 15-year-old son down the hall because the door is shut, he's been in there for three hours on the internet whatever. You have no idea what's going on in the room that your daughter occupies 
down the hall. And so even in our own homes, men, stuff's getting in. So we might, and you, some of us go, well, you know what? I have, it's Arizona, baby. I'm, I'm packing. I got my sidearm. I'm, I got my concealed weapon. I, and, and man, I will blow away anybody that tries to come into my house. Man, I'm going to, I will waste them. And so we get on our, and we start talking about, in fact, I was having a conversation about guns today with some of the guys, some of our other pastors. We were at lunch. We were chit-chatting about guns. And I, I pretend that I know a lot about them. I'm like, yeah, I got a Ruger and whatever. Anyway. And it's fun to talk about that. Sure. And so if a guy comes into your home, I mean, listen, if you try to rob a house in Phoenix, Arizona, you are the dumbest person alive because the odds of you getting lit up are huge. Okay. But here's the thing. I'm not talking about a physical intruder coming into your home, men. I'm talking about spiritual intruder. What are the spiritual forces that are coming into your home and chipping away at the souls of your children and your wife? You got to tend your field. Why is the world broken? Simple. Because Adam did not tend his field. Now, again, this does not mean you have to be perfect. This doesn't mean you have to put up a front. But it does mean, guys, we got to be vigilant about this kind of stuff. We've got to be asking the questions. And I love what we were talking about earlier. You've got to have that discipleship mentality. So when you're watching TV and something comes on that is contrary to your values, don't freak out. And don't go, oh, why are we watching? Just say, you know, here, this, isn't that interesting? How, here's why that doesn't work in real life. Here's why that scenario is destined to fail. Here's why that relationship is a joke and the only time it ever works is in Hollywood. And you don't have to be a heavy all the time, but you got to lead. It's situational, guys. It's situational, which is why your presence in the home is so important. When you are not there, understand that, yeah, in a sense, the more godly you are, the stronger you are, your, your spirit, so to speak, and again, we're not talking about it in a weird way, but in a sense of your, what you would want can, can be present in that home. But the longer you're away, the more risk your house runs. God made that, that responsibility for you. Manly men tend their fields. Let me ask you guys, are you tending your field? Do you know what's going on in your home? Do you know what's going on with your finances? Do you know what's going on with your wife? Are you checking? Because ultimately you are responsible. But here's the thing, guys, that is a beautiful thing. The great myth of our culture is that responsibility is bad. I was reading something. Somebody had, I saw this on Facebook and somebody had written kind of like a Dear Abby and it was a guy in his early 40s who was at the place where he didn't know if he wanted to have a child or not. And so he's, and the reasons that he gave for not wanting to have a child was, well, yeah, you know, am I, I have all this freedom and I have my, my girlfriend and we have all this freedom and life is wonderful. And I don't want a, a child to come in and, and ruin that. So my question is, I'm, I'm at this crossroads because I got to kind of make that decision soon. And I, I just don't know. His biggest problem is, will a child make me happy? And the response that was given on this, in this um, blog, and I can't remember the name of it offhand, and it doesn't really matter, was, was one that said, well, you know, in life we make decisions and, and we have to realize that you could, you could go left, you could go right, and you can't look back and regret. You've got to just live your life and say, 
I can't unscramble the eggs. I can't turn back the clock. And there, there is a concept that there is a parallel life that you could have lived, you know, that you could have lived, that you could have made different decisions and ended up in a totally different place, but that's a life you can't live. You got to realize that there are multiple strains of life that you could have had. And everyone's like, oh, that was so deep. That was so, so good. That was so smart. And I read that. I went, no, 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 whoa, whoa, hang on. You missed the point entirely. The point of should I have a child that the man is asking is not a question of, you know, should I, should I invest in a vacation home or should I just, or should I buy it or should I get into a timeshare or should I buy a Camaro or should I buy a Mustang, Ford or Chevy? Which one's going to make me happier? No, they miss the entire point. The point is, is that the very act of having a child makes you a better man. It creates dimension to your life you could not have anywhere else in, in any other way. It loads you with responsibility, which ultimately focuses you, gives you wisdom and matures you and makes you deeper and better and richer than you could have ever been without it. The issue is not one of living a parallel life and saying, well, you know, if I, should I take in the red pill or the blue pill? And am I, is my life going to end up this way or that way? That's not the issue. The issue is a decision. But see, without an understanding of the very reason of why we've been made as men, we will ultimately not get that. We will simply make decisions based on what we think will serve us. I remember when my son was born. He had like a little complication at the very beginning, so they had to put him in the little NICU. They put him in the little oven. Um, you know, the little, or not, the, like the heat lamp thing they had, you know, with the little, and I, so I couldn't go in and see him because it was kind of, you know, I saw him through the glass. I remember I was watching this little guy. And I remember very, very vividly the thought in my head being, all of my priorities in life now take second place to the needs of this child. Everything that I was excited about, everything that I'm shooting for, all of my aims and desires now take second place to making sure that this child is fed, is well cared for, is protected, is nurtured, is grown is prayed for. And you know, because out of that comes the nature of sacrifice. And sacrifice is everything for a man. I wish we would have had two hours to talk with Stephen Mansfield because his last Mansfield manly maxim is manly men live for the glory of God. This show, you know, is about the fact that the gospel solves everything in the world. I believe it's the solution to everything. Manly men live for the glory of God. Now, why is that the case? Why would it be the case? Because the, the essence of manliness is sacrifice. Now, why is that? Because the essence of Jesus is sacrifice. That's really the essence of who he is. Do you ever wonder why when you watch and even we went out and saw Unbroken, couple weeks ago. What's the most powerful part of that movie? Well, the guy has an unbroken spirit and it's true. 
But we saw a man who consistently refused to give up and gave himself to something higher, to something greater, refused to give in, refused to quit, refused to take the easy road when he could have. We value that in movies. In fact, the movies that have touched us the most, that Hollywood makes, all deal with the same theme, a sacrifice of giving your life for another. And so even the very act of having a child places you in a situation you can't get out of because to be a father means you sacrifice. Now, for those listening who, who can't have kids or decided not to have kids, that doesn't mean that you can't play the role of a father because you need to. There are other, your nephews, there are nieces, there are children, there are people, in fact, talking about building manly men. There are younger men that can benefit from you at any point. And your example. But that's what's so important, my friends. Men, it's sacrifice. And you have the ability to do it. Some of you guys need to go home and look at your wife and you need to say, no, I love you. I'm here for you. I want to read this really quickly. The poem of uh, Sir Francis Drake. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we sail too close to the shore. He continues on. It says, we ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength and courage and hope and love. You got to read the whole thing. Get the book. This is Tim Jacobs. Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. You can see, you can hear all of our podcasts at timjacobslive.com. It has been such a privilege to be with you today. God bless you. We will see you next Tuesday. Next Tuesday.